evidence and answers. Was death a part of the Genesis creation? What about predestination and free will? Are there other possible explanations for the empty tomb of Christ? These were just a few of the questions addressed at the question and answer time at our 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, featuring Christian apologists, Dr. Richard Howe and Dr. Hugh Ross. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's question and answers session is taken from our 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and scholars from across the country. Now for part one of an engaging time of question and answers with Pat and these fine scholars, let's begin today's broadcast. What is the panel's view on Calvinism, predestination, the elect, and how it relates to apologetics? So, I mean, the joke, but it's halfway serious, is the only way to know what the, quote, panel's view is on that is to query each one of the panelists. And it may not be a the panel's view. It may be that you find a difference of opinion, which I think illustrates that in some respects, some of the questions that we're dealing with here in terms of science and faith are indifferent to some of the other theological disputes that we, that we have as Christians, like Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination, and these kinds of things. There is, however, a conspicuous element of Calvinist in contemporary American thinking that has quite a bit of resistance to the task of apologetics as we've been experiencing here this weekend, that somehow it's called presuppositionalism for a number of different reasons would regard the endeavor of a human being to try to utilize natural faculties of reason to be an affront to God, as, especially as we try to engage the unbeliever. And so I take exception to that, obviously, as an apologist. But interestingly, not all Calvinists are presuppositionalists. I think all presuppositionalists that I know are Calvinists. And the reason that is is because the American presuppositionalism, whatever it is, there's nothing that needs to be said beyond the fact that it's generally resistant to apologetics, as most of us would think of that uh, term, that undertaking. Most of, uh, of the presuppositionalism in America comes from this tradition out of Dutch Reformed Calvinism, Abraham Kuyper, who was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, founder of uh, Free University of Amsterdam, its first president, and then the, his disciples, most notably people like, well, ultimately Cornelius Van Til, who immigrated from the Netherlands to the United States and became the professor of philosophy and apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in the, in the 20s. Westminster Seminary was founded by the faculty from Princeton Seminary who basically got tired of fighting the battle for the integrity and inerrancy of the Bible at Princeton as it was going liberal. They decided to just, hey, this is a battle we're not going to win. Let's just go and start a different seminary, which was Westminster. And I credit Westminster for standing in the gap in a ways in which a lot of, Ameri a lot of American seminaries weren't in the early 20th century, capitulating to neo-orthodoxy, even more liberal than, than Bart, even as bad as Bultmann, perhaps. And so I appreciate that, but I've, for reasons I don't know, when Machen, J. Gresham Machen, in effect, got someone to do the apologetics for Westminster, they got Cornelius Van Til, and it just rerouted American Presbyterian and as a subset Calvinism, or actually maybe Presbyterian as a subset of Calvinism, 
into this presuppositional and then consequently sort of an anti-apologetics. I mean, that's not fair maybe perhaps to some presupposition for me to say it that way. And they're not here to defend themselves necessarily. But that's where it connects with what's important to this conference is the fact that what we do here, just be aware that the presuppositionalists would take great exception as God-honoring and biblical. And we would think it's very God-honoring, very biblical. And that's a legitimate debate to have even among Christians. I teach a course at the seminary uh, called Apologetic Systems. That's just the term for, well, what's classical apologetics? What's evidentialism? What's reformed epistemology? What's, you know, cumulative case? What's presuppositional? And each of those have subsets. And we sort of do a, a survey of all of those. And then I spend most of the semester beating up on the presuppositionalists. <laughs> and they're not there to defend themselves either in my class, so I can get away with it. So I think in some sense it's, an, it's a question that's indifferent to our concerns this week or this weekend as far as that, those kind of things. Now, if you want to know what I personally believe, I think that the categories according to which a lot of Calvinism and Arminians have the debate are too few. There are too few categories. So my conclusions may sound very Calvinist to some people, but the way I would unpack those views and the way I would defend those views would be a, a lot thicker than what I think a lot of Calvinists, in my experience, are able or are willing to do. So I, in a way, I'm not quite a Calvinist. In other ways, I do believe in God's sovereignty. I believe God's relationship to creation is analogous to Tolkien's relationship to Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien didn't have to read his novel to figure whether Frodo was going to take the ring to Mordor or not. He's the one that created the entire thing. He's transcendent to it all. I think there's an analogy there to God's sovereign transcendence. And I think it's possible for God to sovereignly predestine people to freely choose their destiny. So that makes both the Calvinist mad and the Arminian mad. <laughs> this was actually part of my conversion, is looking at the different religions of the world and realizing that except for the Bible, all their doctrines can be explained in the context of the dimensions of length, width, height, and time. But the Bible is filled with doctrines that cannot be explained within just length, width, height, and time. The Trinity is an example. And as I looked at the predestination free will, what I notice is there's just as many verses in the Bible teaching free will as there are verses teaching predestination. The Bible says both simultaneously operate. And I've written a book, Beyond the Cosmos, where I point out the doctrine of predestination and human free will cannot be resolved if all you're working with is length, width, height, and time. But if we allow God to transcend those space-time dimensions, after all, he created them. So, of course, he transcends them. And we also know in uh, physics that there are actually nine dimensions of space, not just the three that we see, length, width, and height. There's actually six very tiny space dimensions that accompany the three large ones. So in the context of God's extra-dimensionality and trans-dimensionality, I show in Beyond the Cosmos three different ways you can have predestination and human free will simultaneously operating and simultaneously true. Now, it's possible all three of my examples are wrong. Uh, that wasn't my objective. My objective was to show if we allow God to be as big as what the physics now proves he must be, there are ways that we can have both free will and predestination simultaneously and continuously operating. And that's just one of many different examples. I would argue that the doctrine of hell and heaven in the Bible 
also can't be explained if all you got is length, width, height, and time. But God is trans-dimensional and extra-dimensional. And here's where I think there's an evangelistic uh, opportunity. You know, what we've done in our church is take people out to go door-to-door talking to people and asking them about their spiritual questions. And we found that 15% of the non-Christians said the reason they were non-Christians is they weren't able to resolve free will and predestination. So this isn't just an issue for seminary professors to to talk and to debate about. This is an evangelistic opportunity. And it was Albert Einstein who refused to become a Christian because he saw no resolution to free will and predestination. There's a mission field that we can reach if we tackle the problem of free will and predestination. Oh, he took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say, yeah. Thank, you, Thank you, Dr. Ross, for giving Pat's answer. All right, here we go. Question number two. What do you say to Jewish or Roman authorities under the instruction of Pontius Pilate removed and hid the body of Jesus since this was before Emperor Claudius's Nazareth decree? This is for Dr. Zuckerman. Yeah, this one was asked by a young man. It's a youth question. Great question. That's probably an implausible scenario that the Jews would steal the body of Jesus and perpetuate that he is the Messiah. Remember, it's the Jews that persecuted the Christians. So why would the Jews, you know, steal the body of Christ and end up persecuting their own people? And also remember, you know, one of the reasons Christ was killed is that he was a threat to the entire religious system. If what Jesus taught was true, he's indeed the Messiah, Old Testament Judaism was coming to an end. You know, the priesthood's coming to an end. The sacrificial system is coming to an end. That's all coming to an end. And that was a threat to them. That's why they saw Jesus. That's one of the reasons they saw Jesus as such a major threat to them and why they wanted to put him and his followers to death. So for them to steal the body of Jesus and perpetuate this theology that he's the Messiah who has fulfilled the Old Testament law, that doesn't make any sense. Bringing their own system to an end, that doesn't make any sense. The Roman authorities, they knew that they didn't want to get into any kind of battle with the Jews. They understood what the Jews did just decades earlier with Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks and how they, they were just fierce in combat and had defeated the Greeks who had desecrated the temple. So they didn't want any trouble with the Jews there. They had enough trouble in the empire. And so Pontius Pilate, as you know, one of the reasons he gave in, even though he knew Jesus was innocent, he didn't want any more trouble with the Jews. So for the Romans to be in some kind of plot, to steal the body, that would cause a riot with the Jewish people. And they had to go suppress these riots and persecute Christians and Jews. Uh, that, that doesn't make any sense either. So both those scenarios really wouldn't make any sense for the Romans or the Jewish authorities to be in some kind of plot to steal Jesus, to invent a religious system that would in turn harm uh, both of them. So that, that, that wouldn't make any sense. All right, this one is for Dr. Ross. Please explain how astronomers measure the distance of light years. And how do they know a star is billions of light years away? Okay, it's fundamentally based on the geometry you learned in high school. How, you know, if you have an isosceles triangle, and if you know the length of the base of the triangle, the angles of both ends, you know the distance to the vertex. So, for example, astronomers will look at stars 
in the summertime, they look at it in the wintertime, and when you have a baseline, that's the orbit of the Earth, 186 million miles. And you measure the angles, and that will give you the distance to the star. And that technique works really well out to about 500 light years. Uh, if you want to go beyond that, you can use the statistical method where you do it on hundreds of thousands of stars. That'll get you out to about 10,000 light years. Uh, but radio astronomers have developed a far more powerful tool. And instead of using the baseline of the Earth's orbit, they use the baseline of a maser source that's orbiting about the center of a galaxy. So instead of 186 million miles, we now have tens of thousands of light years as a baseline. So you've got a much bigger baseline. You also have a much more accurate measure of the angle because what they do is they will take radio telescopes at different distances across uh, the Earth. And the advantage of radio astronomy, I'm a radio astronomer, that was my uh, specialty. The advantage of radio astronomy and why I went into radio astronomy Unlike optical astronomy, we not only get the amplitude of the incoming wave, we get the position of the wave. You don't get that at optical wavelengths because the atmosphere disturbs the position. All you get is the amplitude. And so it's very challenging to link together two optical telescopes. They do it on Mauna Kea. They got two 400-inch telescopes that they link together as an interferometer. But notice the baseline is tiny. Uh, we're only talking you know, a few tens of yards apart. But in radio astronomy, because we get both the position of the wave and the amplitude of the wave, we can link together telescopes in Germany with Australia, with the United States, with England, with Aus Australia and South Africa. And so we're able to link together, for example, the Event Horizon Telescope. It's 16 radio telescopes around the world. You get a 6,000-mile diameter telescope. You're basically using TV and computer technology to use these telescopes separated by thousands of miles to get the power of a telescope that would be the equivalent of 6,000 miles in diameter. So the Keck telescope is 400 inches in diameter. Within radio astronomy, we've got telescopes that are 6,000 miles in diameter. And we're able to measure angles with a thousand times more precision than what's possible with the James Webb Space Telescope. And so the fact that we can measure these angles uh, with very high precision and we're using a baseline that's tens of thousands of light years means we can use this high school geometry method to directly measure the distances of galaxies that are a half billion light years away. Because one of the debates within Christendom is young Earth creations will say, well, you only got direct distance measurements out to 500 light years. That's no longer correct. We got direct distance measurements out to a half billion light years. And that, of course, means the light provably, without any assumptions, has been traveling for a half billion years. Now, it is true that we're looking at really distant galaxies. We use an indirect method. We use the redshifts to determine the distances. But those redshifts are accurately calibrated by direct distance measurements out to a half billion light years. And so, for example, with redshifts, we get distances that can be as accurate as six places of the decimal. So that's because we have these very high-quality spectra where we can measure the redshift to one part uh, in a million. Now, 30 years ago, when this debate amongst young Earth and old Earth creation was happening, 
we didn't have these tools. And so a lot of this young earth, old earth debate needs to be updated in light of the new technology uh, that's available. Dr. Ross, I don't know if you know this, but I teach Algebra 1. I'm going to tell my kids in my classroom what you just said about geometry. This is very exciting. Everybody needs to know geometry. Everyone needs to know geometry. That's, my, that's the takeaway here. <laughs> Study math. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go with, here we go. Number six. This is for Dr. Howe. What specific benefits and drawbacks do you think Aquinas offers to modern-day apologetics and the Christian life in the 21st century? Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Just a little bit. Sure, absolutely. So Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century Dominican friar. A friar is an itinerant religious teacher. So he traveled from Naples, basically, to Lyon, to Paris, places, other, other places in Italy, Padua, I think, as opposed to a monk who basically stays at one particular monastery. He, Plato's extant writings, that extant meaning that we still have access to that still exist, is about half a million words. Aristotle's extant writings are about a million words. Aquinas's are eight million words. He wrote only for about 20 years of his life, died when he was 49 years old. And so the stories are that he dictated to four amanuenses at the same time, writing his, his uh, treatises and such. So he's become uh, a paramount medieval, what they call scholastic philosopher, really theologian. The distinction between philosophy and theology as we think of it today, is relatively recent, whether that's good or bad. So when somebody characterizes a medieval person as a theologian, it's not in contradistinction to being a philosopher necessarily. So as I mentioned in my, uh, I think it was during the talk or maybe during one of the Q&A panels, by and large, the thinking of Aquinas has waned in Protestant Christianity since about the 17th, beginning about the 17th century. And I would argue it's for reasons that, two things, it's for reasons that have nothing to do with the Protestant-Catholic de debate over the primacy of the Pope of Rome or the, the nature of the sacraments or any of those kind of things. It had more to do with philosophical influences that Protestantism was more susceptible to than Catholicism was because of its, the constraints that the authorities of the magisterium would have on what people could think, in a sense. And I regret that as a, as a Protestant. There's no reason for it, that to have done. So to the question, at the seminary, we're, we're just enthusiastically, maybe that's even an understatement, committed to the philosophy of, of Thomas Aquinas. Norm Geisler, our co-founder, was a trained philosopher from Loyola, Chicago, was a Thomist. Thomism ex exhibited a tremendous resurgence in the latter part of the 19th and into the 20th century, largely from the influence of of a think tank connected with the University of Toronto, the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies. It birthed just this whole generation of a particular denomination of Thomism that dominated North America that has now itself begun to wane. And ironically, I, I had the privilege with a group of, uh, of friends to have a Zoom session with this prominent 20th and now 21st century Thomist who's retired, but he ran the Institute of Thomistic Studies in Houston, Texas. And I asked him, who's carrying the water for what is known as existential Thomism, which has nothing to do with existentialism if you're a philosophy student. And he said, nobody, really. So I thought, isn't it ironic, the only institution that I know of that's really trying to champion this philosophical model uh, within contemporary Christian and apologetics outside of Catholicism is an even small evangelical seminary out of North Carolina. 
because of the influence of Norman Geisler. So in my humble opinion, Aquinas' metaphysics really gives the best philosophical answer for most of the questions that we care about as Christians. Now, they're philosophical answers. They're not always theological, but they are interconnected in some respects. The Bible always describes God along the contours and categories of the created finite order. He's walking in the garden. He's moving around in the wilderness wanderings. He's got hands and feet and arms and eyes. And we all know that those things are figures of speech. But the only reason we know, for example, when Isaiah 55 says the trees will clap their hands, the only reason we know that's a figure of speech is because we are able to know enough about the nature of a tree to know that it doesn't literally have hands. So when Isaiah attributes hands to a tree, he's speaking metaphorically or poetically. I submit to you there's got to be some way we can know enough about the nature of God that we would be able to know when the Bible is speaking figuratively. So that when it talks about God moving in the wilderness wanderings in 2 Samuel 7, he's not literally physically because he's omnipresent, right? Or he doesn't literally have eyes, even though the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro in the earth. He doesn't literally have nostrils or hair or all these kind of things. These are figures of speech. But I would submit the only way we know they're figures of speech if somebody challenges it on those, interrupt. I don't think most people would take them as anything other than that under best scenario conditions. People say, well, so obviously God doesn't have hair, literally. But I think now because of the toxic influence of these, or influence of these toxic voices, you have a Richard Dawkins who can't connect the dots. He's been so corrupted by bad thinking in my judgment. So now we've got to triage the conversation enough to be able to show people how can we know enough about the nature of God in order to be able to judge that the Bible isn't speaking literally when it ascribes these finite categories to him. And I think the key to that is what Paul gives us in Romans 1.20. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that are made so that we are without excuse. Well, what does that look like to go from the things that are made that we see here, taste, touch, or smell to a God who's eternal, timeless, spacious, immaterial, all good, all powerful, all knowing, all wise, all loving, all righteous, and all good? What does that process, as I suggested, best case scenario, the process is you see the starry sky above and you know there's a God, that he's all good. But because people have been corrupted by bad thinking, then we have to give a little bit more robust answer. So I think Aquinas gives us the best philosophical answers for how we know God exists, his superlative attributes. He gives us the best answers as to what human knowledge is. He gives us the best answers, in my judgment, as to what human nature is, and as an extension of that, what morality is, known historically as natural law theory, which we see imbibed in the Declaration of Independence. When it starts out, you know, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to sever the political bonds which connect them to another and assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them a decent respect for the opinions of mankind required if they give a reason which impelled them to the separation. And then the famous part, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, those self-evident truths were known, according to the founders, by the laws of nature and nature's God. Today, when we hear the expression laws of nature, understandably, most of us think of things like gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear, and those are laws of nature. But historically, laws of nature expression also included moral laws that were knowable by human reason. I'll end with this. As Americans, I would submit to you, we don't have the luxury of time to wait till every American gets saved before we have the conversation about abortion. 
there's got to be some way we can help people who are lost still see the sanctity of human life and now the sanctity of marriage and male and female relationships and other things. There's got to be some way that God has given us these tools to at least make that case as well as we can in his grace. And I think largely the way to do that historically has been this classical tradition that we've inherited from the Greeks and we augmented and modified to fit the truths we know from Scripture that the philosophy couldn't give us and marry those together into this robust system that we sometimes refer to as this classical philosophical realism. And that's why we champion that. That's what I think he has to offer. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.